there would have been revolt. People would have risen up and protest and what have you. But closing the men to God, so what? Who cares? As long as we have our spendable paper money. So, I repeat, it was a tragic thing that there was this delay in the theoretical development of coming up with an ironclad theory of interest. Didn't have it. Didn't have it. The economists were fighting, some on the side of productivity, some on the side of time preference, and these were stupid uh, discussions, stupid in the sense that missing the main problem, which is that the government is going to grab that power, take it away from the people, and have enough material resources to find world wars, much more devastating than the world has ever seen before. And no end to it, because after World War I they said, okay, we have uh, won the peace forever. We have, what was the slogan? We have uh, fought the war to end all wars, or something like that. Sure enough, in less than 25 years there was World War II. Even more casualties, more material damages, more setbacks, you see. And is there a guarantee there will be no World War III? Absolutely none. The, uh, the United Nations organization is, is completely impotent. I mean, the Security Council is paralyzed, uh, the, the uh, General Assembly is paralyzed. So, all right. So this was very tragic. Because what happened? The uh, government and the banks took over the regulation of the rate of interest, took it away from the people and had their own agenda. And they violated both on the low end, on the floor side, they violated uh, marginal time preference and on the ceiling side they violated the marginal productivity of capital. There were transgressions thanks to central bank and government. In fact the interest rate started moving like a, a, a runaway pendulum. Pendulum is usually uh, has a uh, decreasing Company. amplitude, whereas the opposite, the runaway pendulum, has a widening. So there was capital destruction both ends when they violate the floor and then when they violate the ceiling. And the easier one to understand is the, the latter one, when they violate the ceiling. Let me just say a few words about that. <coughs> when the government policies, perhaps this is not their 
purpose, but it's certainly a consequence of government policies. The rate of interest creeps above the marginal productivity rate. Then it should be very obvious that there is a erosion or destruction of capital involved because we talked about this ranking of all capital goods according to productivity. So when the uh, rate of interest is creeping above that as a consequence of government policies, then the marginal productivity of labor is increasing. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? It's, it's a good thing, margin. But not in this case, because what is involved is they are pushing a whole lot of uh, good producing capital back into the sub-marginal range. You see, this is what the increase of capital, marginal capital means. A lot of good working capital still in the prime, because we know they are eroding, they are tear and wear, and ultimately they'll have to be phased out. We know that. But to push them out, push them into the submarginal range prematurely is surely a waste and a stupid policy. And that's what was happening. Because uh, you, uh, some people who have heard me talk about that came back, uh, sorry, you are wrong, because really, as the rate of interest goes up, it can come down, and then this capital, which became submarginal, will emerge as a producing capital once more. So the situation is restored. That is wrong. And it's wrong because capital goods are perishable. Even if you don't use them, just the passage of time will make them perish. Not from one minute to the next, but over a period of time because of technological advancement, because of the fact that uh, there are new inventions and a host of other things. Once, and, and then there's rusting too. I mean, if you have a machinery which had been properly maintained, that's one thing, a piece of machinery. But if you let uh, it uh, go idle, stop using it, then there'll be no capital maintenance and there's rusting. Uh, and it's, it's always uh, a very questionable procedure to dust off the machinery and start working. It's not like that at all. And uh, so there is a waste involved. There is capital erosion when the rate of interest is allowed to rise above the marginal productivity of capital. And I would say this is the less controversial. But now let's look at the other end, the um, floor of the rate of interest, which we uh, specifically identified as the 
marginal product, uh, marginal uh, time preference rate. Okay. So if the interest rate, because of central bank uh, manipulation and government-inspired spending, etc., is pushed down and pushed in particular below the marginal preference rate, something very ominous happens which is controversial. And I had a great deal of difficulty in trying to persuade people who are more or less a closed mind about it. But let's do that here because I think this is very, very important. And we are talking about the destruction of capital as a consequence of falling interest rate structure. I'm not talking about a low but stable interest rate. That's good for the economy. There's no question about that. But if the process is a declining rate, this is lethal. It's disastrous because capital is being destroyed. Not just eroded, but actually destroyed. And as I say, I've been having difficulty per trying to persuade people, even, uh, even well-qualified people, uh, some of them were certainly very well-qualified, but they would disagree with me. They would say, low interest is good for you, period. No more discussion. You see? But I say, don't talk about law. Talk about falling. Because as the rate of interest is falling, what it means, if you really think of it, is that previously uh, contracted loans are now working at a loss. You can, you can put them down the loss column without any further, because if you had waited until interest rates have reached that lower level, then you would have been able to borrow at a lower interest rate, and that's pure saving, it's pure gravy. It's a gift, okay, if you had known that interest rate. But since you didn't know, <coughs> and you had good purposes, capital accumulation, or whatever, to spend the proceeds of the loan, you took the loan at the time, being unaware that if you wait a little, you could have borrowed at a lower rate, and you, your calculations were sound. But what you didn't know was that the government banks would push down interest rate. As a consequence, your solid calculation was crossed and thrown out by the development and by the fact that interest rates were falling. Now, you might say, okay, but at least those who have borrowed at the lower rate are happy because they uh, can easily beat in competition the guys who borrowed earlier. Not so, because the interest rate is still falling and uh, very soon they will come to regret that they borrowed. And their capital will go to pot as well. 
And as long as the tendency is down, the capital, the erosion capital destruction continues. Now that is my problem, that I, I haven't been able to persuade people about this process. There are other ways of explaining exactly the same thing. The conclusion would be the same, but uh, this is a difficult educational problem to make people see that
activity. Um, I know the Mises crowd are on the time preference side, but is there anybody who believes that interest is purely a uh, productivity phenomenon and time preference doesn't matter in there? Is, is there any school that believes that interest is purely a productivity thing at the exclusion of time oh, yeah. preference? Well, go to Boom Bavarek. He has a, a wonderful treatise, two volumes. Well, there are different editions, but in one particular, there's two volumes. And the title is Capital and Interest. And the first part of the book is a survey of uh, various theories of interest which uh, were popular I in his days and, and that was late 19th, early 20th century. So things have changed since then, but it's a good point to start. And he will, he actually devoted a full chapter to the various, not just one, but various productivity theories. And um, uh, he was chastised by Mises for doing that. Mises said, what a waste of time <laughs> to <laughs> criticize productivity theories. It's so obvious that they are off the mark because it's, it has to be done. But nevertheless, uh, Bernbarek did it. And thanks God he did it, because it's a good uh, uh, survey. It gives you an idea of, of uh, the, the general thinking. But they had a narrow view too, because they tended to ignore time preference. And what we are trying to do here is make a synthesis. Both are important, because these are the two sides of the same coin, the time preference and the productivity school. Any, um, any questions? Um, I just, very quick comment, it's worth remembering that when we talk about selling or exchanging capital equipment uh, for bonds or exchanging bonds for gold. Arbitrage. Arbitrage. Uh, it's at the margin, so it's not like you're liquidating every single property, plant and equipment, or everybody is buying, exchanging gold for bonds. It's a marginal thing. It might only be one factory that actually closes down. At any one time. Yeah. But if the move is violent, then one marginal producer follows the other, and there could be a sweep. Yeah which will destroy not just one single factory, but dozens of them. It could happen, depending on the violence of the move, yeah. or volatility of the rate of interest. Really? Well, it, along the same lines, at the very time that uh, people are starting to buy bonds, the supply of bonds is also being mm. reduced. Who wants to borrow? I mean, legitimately. What enterprise will want to build when they're being destroyed and going out of business. Mm -hmm. So you, your supply and demand are forcing this interest rate down. So it's, yeah. it's without a question a very, very solid ceiling. Mm. I think we can move on to the next uh, All lecture. Right. So uh, this is my last lecture, lecture number 20 in that course. And the title is 
<coughs> the discount rate and the marginal productivity of social circulating capital could be right. I, for short, you could call it SCC, social circulating capital. And that concept is going back to Adam Smith and the wealth of nations. I don't think uh, Adam Smith actually uses that combination of three words, social circulating capital. But the idea is there, and uh, he might even use several different phrases to describe the same idea. Now, social circulating capital is, <coughs> as I say, Adam Smith's idea. It's in the wealth of nations, and he is making this very clear distinction that there are people who buy goods in order to sell them again. In other words, they are doing arbitrage. But there is an end to that long chain of buying, selling, buying, selling, as the underlying consumer good matures. And when it reaches that final stage of the journey, then some very important changes take place. Because ultimately when you sell the mature consumer good to the ultimate consumer, it's no more arbitrage because you just sell, period. And after that is consumption. So uh, one ha is almost forced to conclude that there is something important happening at the end of the food chain. Because when the, uh, you, the food is being processed, maybe dozens of processors, food processors, hand it one hands it to the next and then to the next again so. But the food at the last stage is being consumed and the output we can't mention it in polite company what it is. <laughs> but we all know what it is. So it's no longer arbitrage because the consumption pretty well destroys the value. It's no longer uh, marketable. Whereas in the previous stages it was marketability in fact increased until the final consumer bought it. But after that it's all gone. So I am going to describe this uh, development that there is a huge river. There's a huge river. And it's emptying into the ocean. And the ocean is consumption. And that river itself is the social circulating capital only in the final stages. Because 
we are talking about the last 91 days of the molecules in the river to reach the sea of consumption. That's what we are talking about. Before 91 days, uh, it's a diff it takes a different analysis to uh, see what's happening. So we are talking about, it, it, it gets the name social circulating capital. At the moment, it crosses that 91-day time uh, limit. After that, let's uh, use the example that the river is flowing into the ocean, but, and of course we know the river is fresh water and the ocean is salt water, but there is a transitional period when the salinity, degree of saltiness, the salinity of the river changes because it's close enough to the ocean and there is the uh, flow and ebb of the ocean. So the salt water pushes up stream, mixes with salt. So there's a transition. And that's what we are talking about. 91 days is the salinity of the social circuit and capital has changed, became more salty. And therefore the, the whole ecology of the river is changing. It's a different type of fish which flourish in this. It's neither seafood fish nor freshwater fish. It's something different. And, and other living creatures and other uh, plants which like this type of environment. So th this is what we are talking about. But now let's go back to economic terms and uh, apart from the metaphor which I, I personally found very helpful this metaphor of uh, river emptying into the ocean. Let's just uh, quickly review what is changing when the uh, maturing consumer goods get closer and closer and closer to the ultimate gold-paying consumer. Because the marketability of the good is improving. There's no question that at an early stage before the 91 days, it could be something like wool. Now, if you want to sell wool, you have to look at a very small market, because very few uh, tradesmen are interested in buying raw wool. They are not equipped to uh, do the various things which is to be done. I don't know, you have to wash it, you have to clean it, you have to whiten it, and all kinds of other things. With the, with the cotton, of course, you know that there's a famous uh, cotton gin which had to be invented to get rid of those uh, seeds, cotton seeds which are mixed into the, uh, So that's more obvious there. But the same thing is happening with wool. It has to be prepared. So the marketability is very narrow because there not many people are equipped to deal with it. 
And besides, even if you assume that this is already wool which had been prepared, uh, well, you have to spin the yarn, you have to weave the cloth, and uh, there are probably other stages in between, and, and who is going to bother with that unless you are really specialized for that? So the marketability of wool is limited. There's a market, there's no question. It's a good product, very much in demand, but the marketability is very limited. Go one step uh, further, the spinner has spun the uh, wool into yarn. Now the marketability of yarn is a little bit better because there are still women, especially in the countryside, who prefer to do their own uh, weaving. Or, and, uh, and in certain countries like, uh, like Afghanistan and so on, uh, uh, Iran, uh, it's, it's a cottage industry to uh, weave rugs and all kinds of other things. Well, even in my country, especially uh, in the mountains with lots of sheep, uh, women make rough uh, blankets, pure wool, but you can see that it's very rough, it's nothing refined about it, but they like it and, and even wear clothes. So I don't have to pursue this further, everybody sees that the marketability is, is improving all the time. Until the final stage when it reaches its maximum and then in the market. Now, as the marketability improves, the risk which the entrepreneur is facing is getting less and less and less. But, but that's almost built into the concept of marketability, because this, we describe marketability in terms of the spread between the bid price and the ask price. And the narrower the spread is, the less, the less your risk is, because you can buy and do something with it, improve or uh, make it more marketable and sell and the risk is more because the bid-ask spread for the good in your hands is smaller. Now this is a feature which I think uh, Mises doesn't recognize and, and uh, I think it's a mistake. This should be noted that the marketability of a good on the way to the ultimate consumer is improving and therefore the risk of the tradesman who is handling this, getting it from uh, higher up uh, uh, then he will hand it to somebody lower down. The risk which this particular entrepreneur carries is getting smaller and it becomes the smallest in the case of the retail merchant, the shopkeeper. Because the shopkeeper is in, 
immediate contact with the consumer on a daily basis. The consumers come in, buy, and if they, uh, their mood changes or their taste changes, the retail merchant is the first who is put on notice that something has happened. You better adjust the, your incoming merchandise or you have to tell your supplier to add this feature and that feature because the consumer no longer is interested in your old line product. They want something different. You see, so as a result, the smallest risk is borne by the retail merchant. Now, we talked about zero uh, discount rate. Uh, I envisage zero discount rate in a situation where, uh, where a lot of people start selling consumer goods on the curbside. They don't even rent a, a, a shop to sell retail. They just say, okay, I set up my stand right on the curb and I display my merchandise on the sidewalk. Zero capital, practically, right? And the zero discount rate, well, literally, perhaps it's not zero, but close to zero, means that he's getting credit free, self-liquidating credit, because the supplier would leave the merchandise with this curbside vendor and collect his share next day when he delivers another and so on. So you see the risk can be reduced almost indefinitely, almost to zero. Well, let's assume that it's not really zero but very, very low. And that is an important feature of the market, especially the retail market. What I'm doing in this last lecture is trying to develop a theory of retail trade as opposed to wholesale trade and, and trade uh, of goods for the producers at a higher level. Uh, but at the retail level, it's a different market. You've got to study it. And then you come up with the uh, recognition that it's really the discount rate. Another point where I disagree with Mises and the uh, new Austrian School of Economics uh, the, disagrees with Mises. Mises says that the discount rate is just short-term interest rate. Nothing more, nothing less. And this is wrong because the discount rate can go to zero whereas interest rate can even go higher at the same time. Uh, and uh, it's very important that the discount rate uh, is low because that makes it possible 
for uh, getting away without or with very little risk in comparison with the risks involved in the production process at a higher level. This is very important. And um, <clears throat> what I would say is that this uh, theory about this country, about social circulating capital, is really uh, a new presentation of Adam Smith's Real Bill's Doctrine. Because it analyzes that particular process, bringing in this idea of reduction of the risk. Now, I'm, I'm trying to...